0: since you are not law end of grace. This is the
1: word of the Lord. And it is good to be among God's people to worship corporately together, our great God. Thanks for joining us at sojourn. Uh, my name is Dylan, one of the pastors. We are going through Romans, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in Romans six this morning. Uh, and as we prepare to um, think through this verse together, would you pray this prayer that's up on the screen with me? This, this prayer, I'll give you a second to, to look at it so that it can, can be a chance to be a prayer in your heart, but it, it comes from a helpful uh, book called Be Thou My Visions, a daily liturgy. I think it's been really helpful for my own personal life, so I would uh, commend that book to you, but, but think through these words, pray through these words with me as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Say this with me, O oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. T- to no fault of the church... Uh, that I grew up in or to the people that surrounded me as I grew up. I, I grew up, I think, I could say with a, a kind of reduced view of what holiness is, reduced view of what sanctification is, maybe a, a shallow or minimized view of what it means to live the Christian life. I, I for certain, surely had a, a minimized view of, of what a Christian's relationship to sin was to be. I would have probably uh, given you some sort of definition of Christianity and what it means to follow Christ by, by a list of here's a few things that you do, and, and here then on the other side is a few things that you don't do. And then the, even the understanding of how we walk in the Christian life would have been something of a checklist. Like, these are the things that you have to do, and you check them off along the way. And, and as long as you're not too far out of bounds on that, then you're going to be okay with the Lord. And I have needed the the deep correction that comes from the book of Romans, the deep correction that comes from Romans chapter 6 that that describes for the Christian, here is your relationship to sin now. Paul writes that that you are now, if you're united to Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. And he continues to explain in detail what that looks like. And so Paul writes to explain that believers are, here's what he's going to say in these verses 6 through 14, uh, no longer enslaved to sin because of their union with Christ. And so believers then should consider themselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then that, if that is true, then they are to not let sin reign in their lives. So the, here's, here's what Paul is doing. He, he's using a well-worn pattern for him. He's using the indicative, what God has said or done, who we are or, or what we have done, he's letting that, that drive the imperative. So, so what, what is true about us and what is true about what God has done for us is going to drive what he has now commanded of us. This is his well-worn path. And what he says is, this is who you are in Christ, you should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and because you are dead to sin and alive to God, you shouldn't let sin reign. So we are no longer enslaved, and because we're no longer enslaved, we should live lives that are holy before the Lord. These are weighty indicatives, who we are in Christ. And then because of that, they have enough support and strength to hold up these weighty imperatives. And so the first indicative that Paul is zealous to these Christians, that all Christian hearers know, is that faith unites them to Christ Jesus, and that that Union with Christ means what he says in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. The old self, the, the self that was in Adam, under the reign of sin and death, that self, Paul asserts of that self, it was crucified with Christ Jesus. That's very definitive. Language, it wasn't stuffed in a closet destined to come back out somewhere. It's not hiding under the bed, still lurking in the shadows. It's not half dead or partially dead, partially remaining. Crucified, he says, of the old self. For all those who have faith in Jesus, who are united to Christ by faith, you've moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. There there is no in Adam anymore. There's just in Christ now. The old self has been crucified. Crucified. That's why Paul could say, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I no longer live, I have been crucified, I no longer live. He knew that his old self was crucified with Christ and was no longer. And the purpose of that decisive reality, that definitive reality in Christ is given for us in verse 6. He says that our old self was crucified with him in order that, here's the reason, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin, this old self, under sin's rule, under the reign and dominion of sin and death in Adam, that's the body of sin, and that body of sin is dealt with conclusively. That body of sin is not in limbo. It's crucified. He says that it's brought to nothing. He's matching the description of crucified that he said earlier of the old self. In other words, he's saying it's completely destroyed, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Apart from union with Christ, by our faith in him, all are enslaved to sin. Apart from Christ, all are under the power of sin, and that sin seeps into every area, every corner of life. It's everywhere present. In Adam, all are so corrupted by sin that every inclination, every affection, every word, every deed flows, that flows out of one's life flows uh, uh, not to God and for God, but away from God. It, it is all of it that flows out of our lives. All of it is tainted. It is marked. It is marred by sin. It's moving away from God and against God. Now, that, that doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. Of course not. What it does mean is that sin, if you're not in Christ, sin is affecting every area of your life. The effects of the fall are so deep that sin is the actual desire of those who aren't in Christ. The the greatest desire, if you could boil down the greatest desire of those who haven't trusted in Christ, it's for something sinful. Because it's not totally and fully for the Lord. And upon that great desire, here's what those do apart from Christ, they act on those desires. They do what they most want to do. They sin. And there's no power to get out of this. If you're not a believer with us this morning, we're thankful that you're here. But I think what the scripture tells you, you need to know that I think the scripture tells you plainly that you are enslaved to your sin. And that it holds power and sway over your life. And that it is the deepest desire of your heart. It's the deepest thing you want. The deepest thing you love. What's the big deal with that? The big deal with that is that Scripture tells us that if we are that is that's the case of us, then then sin leads to death. And that we're under the judgment of God. And further, like that sin that you most want and desire, like it will never satisfy you. Like sin never does. Not for long. Maybe maybe momentarily and then then it'll pass. right? Sin doesn't satisfy. It always wants more and more and more. And yet we can keep getting the deepest desires of our hearts and never be fulfilled because sin is not what we're meant to be fulfilled by. It's a cruel master. If you want to see the power of sin in your life or its enslavement and the enslavement that it holds, how about you say no to sin for God's sake, for the glory of God. If you want to see the power of sin, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Start loving your neighbor as you love yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Putting their needs above your own needs. Start doing that. Do everything. Eat, drink, whatever you do to the glory of God. And when you start trying to attempt that apart from Christ, it's going to show you how impossible it is to do that and how much power sin has over your life, how it has enslaved you. And hopefully it will reveal to you your need for Jesus. A Christian is not one who doesn't understand enslavement to sin. They've experienced it. No, a Christian is one who's recognized that we were under the power of sin and death. We were enslaved for it and and that we we had no way out. We couldn't get out on our own. And, And in that place where we had only need, we looked to Jesus and he rescued us. That's what a Christian is. So that now, it's not that Christians no longer sin, but that sin doesn't control or rule our lives. Christians know the reality of what Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples in John 15 about being a vine and a branch. Christians, you're the branch. Nothing on your own, right? Like, branches don't do anything, right? They're supported fully, completely by the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're, like, you're the branches, right? In John 15, 5, he says to those branches, apart from me, what can you do, branch? You can do nothing. Nothing. What, nothing. We could say a lot about that, but for sure nothing good, right? Nothing. But if you abide in me, there's union language, union with Christ, being in Christ kind of language. If you abide with me, you bear much fruit. The difference between one who can do nothing and the one who can bear fruit is union with Christ Jesus. Where one is, verse 6, crucified with them in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because he says, verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. You're free from sin because you're dead. Death is the decisive break with sin as the old self is crucified with Christ, freeing the the self, who now has an old self that's been crucified, freeing that self from the grip of sin. And I love how unqualified this statement is here. Set free from sin. He doesn't list the kind here, does he? Sin of any kind. You're set free from sin, from any kind of sin. And the reality of that isn't contingent upon whatever the sin is, is it? Set free. Not contingent upon how hard that sin is, how prevalent it is in your life. It's not contingent upon that. It's contingent upon whether one is crucified with Christ or not, whether one is united with Christ by faith or not. That's the contingency. And when one is in Christ, sin's power is broken. Its penalty has been removed so that sin has no further claim. It had a claim on the old self. The new self it has zero claim on. We're free. All in Christ are set free from sin, no matter how tight of a grip it had in the past, no matter how hard the enslavement of the past, we're set free. That past is now crucified. So I, I, I can't help but when I'm reading this as a believer, I think like, man, believers are the ultimate moochers. I wasn't crucified. I'm, I'm, not, I I'm not dead, right? I'm living, breathing. I'm here in front of you speaking. I wasn't crucified. And yet he says, I was crucified. I, I didn't die. I didn't face death. And yet I've died. What he's saying is that in Christ, you've joined in with Christ in those things so that you receive the benefit of them. We're, we're mooching off of what Christ has done. He actually was crucified. He actually died. And we received the benefit of that. The benefit received is so great now that the decisive moment for us and our sin was not something during our lifetime, but was at Calvary. That's how decisive that moment was and how we share into it. I think of the, the song, Bearing Shame and Scoffing Rude. In my place, condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon. I I didn't stand there. He stood there. I didn't get my pardon. He got my pardon. With what? Not my blood. His blood was spilled for it. And I get the benefit. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He was crucified. He died. And in Him, we receive the blessed and glorious benefits. Not only freedom from sin, but newness of life. Verse 8. If we have died with Christ. There's union with Christ again. We believe that we also will live with Him. It's similar to what He said in verse 4 and 5. In a very parallel, we were buried with Him by baptism in a death in order that just as Christ was raised from, the, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if you've been united with Him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you're with him and united to him in his death, if you've been crucified with him, then you also live with him in his resurrection. You have life in him. And that life that Paul is speaking about is written for believers that were on the ground, that were trying to walk these things out. And so that life that he's speaking about is not merely a future resurrection life, although that's true as well, but it's a a future resurrection life that has broken into the present so that they could walk in newness of life right now. And what is it grounded in? What is it founded upon? It's founded upon the, the person and work of Jesus, what he has done, his death. His resurrection, that's where the believer finds their foundation for how they can walk in life right now. Jesus, he's the one who faces death. He goes all the way down into it, and he comes out undefeated because death couldn't hold him. And his resurrection shows the irreversibility of death's power over him. It cannot and will not defeat him. So that we could say of Jesus, as he says in verse 9 and 10, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Think of it. Once for all. Jesus, he died to sin. That's not meaning that Jesus in some sense was, or was in any way, sinful. But he was identified with sin. He was identified with sin in his death. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Verse 21. He who knew no sin. He knows no sin. But He was made to be sin. He's identifying fully with sin. Receiving the consequences of sin. Galatians chapter 3 13. He he became a curse for us. That's identification with sin. He's dying to sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body. He is the sin bearer. The Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. Adam's Sin ushered in this reign of sin and death. As chapter 5, verse 12 puts it, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and death spreads to all. Or verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that in came sin, in comes the reign of sin and death. But Jesus died to sin, what does it say in verse 10? Once for all. That's enough, he says. Enough to do sin in. Enough to do in the power of death. Jesus takes on the power of sin by receiving its consequence in full and he triumphs over it so that now the co-reign of sin and death has been defeated in Christ Jesus. And having broken the dominion of sin and having defeated death, Jesus lives. And what it says in verse 10 is that he now lives to God. Verse 10. The life he lives, he lives to God. He was treated as sin and with sin in his death as he bore sins. And now that's done. Eternally done. And the life he lives, he now lives to God. And, and there's a pattern now that he's establishing for believers. Like if you've died, then now you live to God. All of this supports what Paul has been declaring. What he says explicitly in verse 6. The old self has been crucified. He roots that down deeply in the personal work of Jesus. So that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The, the person and work of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has already accomplished, which is objective truth. Things that have actually happened lands on this we that he's been speaking of in these verses. That those who are in Christ, we. And verse 6 that the body of sin might be brought to nothing that we would no longer be enslaved to sin is not contingent upon certain personality types. It's not dependent upon particular propensities to sin or not sin or particular sins and how sticky they may or may not be in one's life. No, verse 6 is contingent upon, it depends upon, it hinges on the person and work of Jesus and one's union with Him. So that you could say that if you're united with Jesus, you're united with him in his death and you're united with him in his life so that the body of sin in your life might be brought to nothing and that sin would no longer hold dominion over you and you wouldn't be enslaved to it any longer. This doesn't mean that Christians no longer sin or that sin's presence has now magically been removed. We we know that sin's presence remains. I mean, think Jesus died and he was raised But he has not returned. That's promised as well. Consummation, uh, finalization, completion of the work of Christ awaits. And so this is true for us as well as believers. We live in this gap of when Christ has has lived, died, risen, and, and we await his return. And we're in the gap there. And in that gap, the gap where Christ has already accomplished all these things, but not yet finally and fully consummated all things as he will, in that gap of the already not yet where he has inaugurated the kingdom of God by faith in himself, but not yet fully made it present, in that gap, in Christ, we've died to sin and we can walk in newness of life, living out what God has called us to live out. Awaiting in that place, consummation, finalization, conclusion to all of Christ's work. And in that gap, sin's presence still remains. Sure, we're set free from the bondage of sin. We no longer are enslaved by it, but we're not free in every respect from this present evil age in which we live, in which Christ will return to and finally and fully take care of. That includes those who are in Christ, sin's remnants in our lives. It's already not counted to us. We're counted as righteous in Christ. That's the part of the already. We already have died, but it's not yet fully gone because we're in that gap. We're in between the resurrection and the return. And it's in this gap that all that was said in verses 6 through 10 of our union with Christ, dying with him, Sharing death and resurrection with him. It's in all that, verses 6 through 10, that is true now, given to us now to know. And it's also in this gap that we're going to be given commands. Right? At this point, from verse 10, Paul is going to shift. And it's an important shift. He's making a transition. In verse 11 and following, he's going to move from the indicative, who we are, what God has done, what God has said, what God has promise and declare to the imperative, to commands. Paul has finished with the indicatives and they are weighty. We've united with Christ in death and we've united with Christ in life. The body of sin might be brought to nothing and we wouldn't be enslaved. He's just said it. Now he's going to move to the commands where he's going to tell us because of these things, let's, let's do some things. It, it's, I, I had this conversation this week. Uh, what are we to make of... Sin's presence that remains. And and I said, well, it's a little bit like becoming what you are. And and yet, that needs to be refined a bit. I need to correct that a bit. Become what you are. You often hear that when you think about Paul's, his indicatives drive his imperatives. You might have heard that. And it's true. It's a pattern of Paul. Just start marking out, like, what does he do here? Actually, in the book of Romans, there are lots and lots and lots of indicatives and, and less commands, far fewer because he holds up what he wants Christians to do and how he wants them to live, with all the things that God has done and what He has accomplished and achieved, He's going to do that over and over again. So a lot of people will say of that, "Well, then we become what we are if we already are these things, and we become that." And yet, that's not quite fully right, is it? It's a little bit overrealized. We're not, we are that, but not fully yet, right? So don't become what you are, and that you're not that fully yet. So it's a little bit overdoing it. So some would correct that and say, but will we become what we're becoming. Well, that's not quite right either, is it? <laughs> that's a little bit under. No, we're not becoming it. We are already that, but not yet fully, right? So you, you see the tension. We, we are, what, what are we to do? We're, we're in the already not yet. So we already are these things, but we're not yet fully. And in the already not yet, we just let what is said about us to be true, what God has given to us, what Paul has said in verses 6 through 10, we let those indicatives, we let those drive the imperatives where the imperatives can be lived out because those indicatives are true of us. And one author, I think, helps us when he says that the outworking of the imperative, the imperatives, the commands that he's going to give us in everyday existence, reveals that the indicative is truly operating. So for the believer, we're not saying that there's going to be perfect obedience. But if there is no outworking of obedience and outworking of those imperatives then what we can conclude is that the indicatives, who you are in Christ Jesus, what he has done and what he has accomplished, are not operating in your life. So we could say that you're not united with Christ then. If you haven't died to sin, then you haven't been united to Christ. And so he's going to give us some heavy imperatives, starting in verse 11, 12, and 13. And every single one of them we need to hear in the right light. We need to hear as held up, supported by, rooted down deeply in Jesus' person and work so that those imperatives can be rightly operative in our life, rightly worked out and obeyed. Listen to what he says in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's asserted, he's declared, he's proclaimed that one who is in Christ has died with him and lives with him. And now what he wants to happen is he wants his readers, he wants Christians to appropriate that reality, to appropriate that truth. It's the same word, consider, that he's used to say count earlier with with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He wants believers to count it to themselves. That's what he's saying. Count these things to yourselves. Count it. These indicatives that I've said, count them. But this is in Christ Jesus, Right, It's not counting it alone. You need to, again, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus, these things are true. Paul's asserted, in Christ Jesus matters. You can count that you have died to sin in Christ Jesus. You can count that you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, don't just know it to be true as an idea and as a thought. Although that's good too, count it. On your behalf, count it because it's true. Christ Jesus was crucified. He was raised. So too Christians are to say, I I have been crucified. I'm to count it, consider it. I have been raised. I think in light of what Jesus has actually done, let's not do him the great unkindness of not counting what he's done to our own lives. If he said it's true, let's not do him the unkindness of rejecting what he said about us. Let's count it rightly. Let's consider it rightly. What the world, I think, often wants to do, it wants to define people, wants to define you by what you want. If you want something, then that all of a sudden probably is something that you need in order to live out your life and be satisfied. It's what you need in order to be fulfilled. So you're a consumer. You are what you want, right? And, and here's a ton of products that will fulfill that need that you have to, in order for you to live out the life that you were meant to live. They will define you by what you want. You're a consumer. Here are some products so that you can be fulfilled. So not only do you want it, but now you need it, and that's how you can be fulfilled. Think of how this is going wild in terms of sex. You, you want this, so now all of a sudden, because you want it, now it has to be a need. And you have to carry it out in order for you to be your true self. That is how the world would like to define you. And the Bible says to that, you are not what you want. Even unbeliever, you're not what you want. You're an image bearer of the one true living God. The Bible says that not only are you an image bearer, but if you're in Christ Jesus, if you are a believer, you are not what you want, but you are in Christ Jesus, dead in Him and now alive in Him. Now, well-meaning recovery groups can do the same thing and identify people by their sin and with their sin. You are one who struggles with this. So this is the category that you need to go to in the program that you need to run. And the Bible says, you're not that. You're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ Jesus. And we need to stop being defined and defining ourselves by our sin. The old self is crucified with Christ is what Paul says. He just asserts it and indicates it plainly. You are are crucified and now he says that's true count it consider it to your life now we need to stop receiving our identity from our desires and wants or or any part of the old self instead receive it from the scripture in christ jesus you are a new self your old self was dealt with decisively at the cross and in the empty tomb your new creation and so again, don't do Christ the, the unkindness of not considering, not counting it to your life what he has achieved on your behalf. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not those things anymore. Your past has been crucified with Christ. You've been risen. You've raised, been raised to walk in newness of life. Sin doesn't define you, your wants, your desires. They don't define you anymore. Your your identification doesn't come from who you are in the world's eyes or what you want or desire. None of those things reign anymore. Sin doesn't define you. It doesn't identify you. It doesn't reign. Let not it reign. Right? That's what he's going to say in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's this great... um, YouTube clip. You could look it up afterwards. It's, I think it's worth your time. Not now because I know you have your phone out already anyway. But uh, we use it often in in uh, thinking about counseling. It's it's Bob Newhart, and and it's this this clip that he where he says stop it. If you've you heard the, the a lot of people you should look it up. It's worth your time. It's like five minutes. Stop. Or so this lady comes in. She's been referred to him. He's a doctor. So I've got this problem. I want to talk to you about. And he's like, okay, well, like. This will only take five minutes, you know, like we'll be out of here in no time. So he says, all right, tell me, tell me the problem. And this person is scared of being buried alive in a box. And he says, all right, I've got two words for you. And, and that'll be enough. It normally does a trick. And, and the two words are what? Stop it. That's why he says, stop it. And she says, but, but, but. And he's like, no, 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 we don't do that. Just, just stop it. That's what we do. For those who are enslaved in sin. Stop it is terrible advice. Horrendous counsel, further enslaving. But if it's grounded in the person and work of Jesus, that Christ Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life in obedience to his Father, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose again and now lives to God, if it's rooted in the person and work of Jesus, here's what you need to hear. Stop it. Christian, Here's what Paul says to your sin. Because of what Jesus has done, stop it. Paul says, let not sin reign, because he knows sin is still a present reality. There's going to be a struggle and a battle here. It's still present, and even in the life of those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who are in Christ, sin's reign has been definitively broken in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, stop it. One who is in Christ can look to sin, be tempted by sin, feel its allurement and pull, and say no. I think perhaps we are far too easily resigned to say that our, our sin struggles is just, it's just kind of the way it is. Like, I just am kind of weak in that area. Or perhaps we go a little bit further and say, I just can't help it. Struggle with this Addiction. Perhaps we're too easily convinced that, that whatever the sin is, is just like, that's just my lot. That's just the cross I bear. It's just my addiction, my dysfunction, or whatever. And I think Paul says plainly here in verse 12 that that is a lie. Remember the indicatives. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Remember those. And let not sin reign. Say no to sin. Stop it. In your temptation to sin, which is a very real temptation that still exists, Paul knows this all too well. He'll speak a lot of it as we come up into the coming chapters. He'll, he'll talk about those uh, temptations and the pool to sin. But in those, we, we have all sorts of precious promises all over the Scripture. One, that those things don't identify me, they don't have power over me anymore. But we remember, in our temptation, Paul even says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When you're tempted with sin, make sure you remember who you are and what God has done, what He has said, what He has promised in that midst. He is not going to let you be overtaken, be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He's going to provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember that in the midst of your temptation and sin, And remember, actually, the faithfulness of God is on the line here because He has promised to give me a way out of it. So again, what can we say in the midst of our sin and temptation? We say no to it. Because God is faithful. Because of what He has done. Remember, you've died in Christ Jesus. And you're alive in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't have to walk in sin anymore. Remember, if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't have to walk in sexual immorality. You don't have to walk in whatever your browser history is. You don't have to continue in that anymore. You don't have to walk in impurity. You don't have to walk in evil desires or covetousness or greed or envy or pride or falsehood. You don't have to walk in sinful anger you don't have to walk with wicked speech, giving yourself over to gossip and slander and to cutting others down. You don't have to walk in the fear of man. Those are just lists that Paul has given in Ephesians and Colossians. He says, put those things off because you can in Christ Jesus. And in those places, he says, be clothed, you are clothed with Christ, so put on the likeness of Christ, because that's what's most true about you now in Christ. Not those things. The clothing of Christ. Christ. In Christ, you can obey the commands of Scripture, including, verse 12, let not sin reign. In Christ, we can, verse 13, not present members, your members, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The the parallel, I think, helps us here of, of members and yourselves And I think that helps in verse 13. It it tells us, when he goes from members and then present yourselves, tells us that Paul is referring not just to the physical body, although that's true as well, but to the whole person. Present yourself and don't present yourself. And certainly the effects of sin are felt bodily. The the body is the instrument of sin. It's carried out in the body in some capacity. And Paul says, actually, don't let that happen anymore. No more. Don't present your body to sin anymore. Present yourselves to God. And again, what does he do? He roots it down in the indicative. Verse 13. As those who have been. He just asserts it. Right in the middle there of a really hard command. He just asserts it. As those who have been brought from death to life. Why? Because we're crucified with Christ. We've risen with Christ. He just puts it in there again. As Jesus died to sin once for all and lives to God, so too those in him are dead to sin and are to live to God. So what does he say? What's the command? Give yourselves to God. Don't give yourselves to these things, the, the deeds of unrighteousness. Instead, give yourself to God. Let, let the body, let the self, let who you are be delivered over and, and say, present it to God as an instrument for his righteousness and of righteousness. Let the song... We sang, we didn't sing it at our wedding, but it was played at our wedding. We would never sing uh, at, our, at our own wedding. That would be weird, but it, probably any time, that's, not, our, that's not, not my gift, all right? So, take my life. It's such a special song to us because of that. And we really wanted, like, our lives. Like, we wanted to take my life and let it be, consecrated to the Lord, right? Fully given to Him. And I think that that kind of captures this, present yourselves to God, right? Take my moments, my days. Let them flow with praise. To take my hands and let them move at the impulse of God's love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, take my lips, take my silver and my gold, take my will, take my love. And, and he wants it all to be directed toward the Lord. That, that is a song of presenting our bodies, ourselves, to God and saying, it is yours. He's, he's trying, and that song, I think is a reflection of saying that this is what verse 13 has told us to do. And we're presenting all of us to this this is what christians can offer because we have died and we have now risen there's this great picture and now i have the t-shirt now but there's this great picture you can show this picture it is of a bull and this bull is in between the altar and the plow i love this and above it says ready for either spurgeon said of this this is where i first heard it from spurgeon he said lord accept me I here present myself praying to live only in thee and to thee. Let me be as the bullock which stands between the plow and the altar to work or to be sacrificed. There's the altar. There's the plow. And he says, let my motto be, says it above the top, ready for either. Ready for either because we've presented ourselves to God. What do you want? You want me to die you want me to plow? I'll do both. I'm ready for whatever because I've presented myself fully to you. Christian, Like you are one who has said, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I don't belong to me. I belong to God now. We we are those who, if we've been following Romans, we've said, I've been crucified and raised in Christ Jesus. So I am found fully in him, if that's true of you. Have you said this in a while? Have you actually like in your heart and mind or actually proclaimed it with your lips? God, I'm ready for either. I'm presenting myself to you again. How about you start each day like that? Maybe seeing, take my life. Maybe put that picture as a tattoo on your body. Or I've got the t-shirt and it's available for purchase. Not mine. I'll keep mine, but there are others, I think. Maybe put that t-shirt on each morning and tell God again. I, I want to be faithful to what you've commanded of me, and I'm free to do so now in Christ Jesus, so I'm ready for either. I'm pull the plow today. I'll pull it. Do I need to go to the altar today? I'll do that too. Ready for either. Maybe do it now. Maybe for the first time that like, I'm yours. Because I'm in Christ, here is myself as an instrument for righteousness. Because, church, verse 14, is true. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Verse 14, he switched back to the indicative. He's tricky like that. He switched it. And I think gloriously so, right? Verses 11, 12, and 13, that's hard. Say no to sin all the time. Every time I can do that and I'm free to do that, and you know what happens, right? I don't fully want to do that yet. There's some not yet that's a little bit more strong in my life than what I want to admit sometimes. But he switched back to the indicative, gloriously so, because he gives us this great assurance after those hard commands. No one in Christ Jesus is working for their salvation as they seek to obey, verses 11 through 13. No one in Christ Jesus is working For their approval before God as they try to carry out faithfully verses 11 through 13 no one in Christ Jesus is working for their acceptance before God as they try to obey these tough commands from verses 11 through 13 but in Christ Jesus we only ever work from our salvation from our acceptance from our belonging it's grace that we're under And we're under grace because we're in Christ Jesus. If we were still under the law, then this new age with this new Adam wouldn't be present. And what would that mean? That would mean sin would still rule as it did in the old age. Look at the Old Testament. Like, how did sin rule? Well, it ruled so heartily and greatly among God's people that they were judged by God and sent into exile. And he said of them, you need a new heart, you need a new covenant. Like, that's under the law We'd be under the curse. But no, in Christ Jesus, we're not under the law anymore, but under grace. You, you have now been placed under this new age where sin and death are no longer co-reign in your life. Christ reigns. He's Lord over all what Paul is saying is that that doesn't mean that you continue in sin, that grace may abound. Isn't that what he asks in verse 1? What are we to say? Are we continuing in sin that grace may abound? I think he hammers that one down pretty hard in verse 12, doesn't he? Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So should we continue in sin that grace may abound because we're under grace and not under the law? By no means. How would that be consistent with who you are in Christ Jesus? How would that be consistent in the reality that you have died in Christ and been raised with Christ? No, to be under grace is to be free to not continue in sin. To not let sin reign in your body, but to walk in newness of life. That's what it means to be under grace and not under the law. I wonder if you're like me, and you kind of reduced the view of sanctification to, to a kind of a list of here's what we do and don't do. If you've minimized the reality of sin and thought, as long as I'm within this category, I know there's going to be some sin, but it's probably okay because I'm under grace. Let's let Romans 6 correct our view of what it means to be Christ. Let's let our union with Christ dictate how we live in this life here and now. So that we could say, let's not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Let's let the indicatives of these verses correct us. And let's let the imperatives command us. And let's do it all in the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.